1929, Gerald Holland wrote in American Mercury magazine, whatever odium may be attached to beer in other parts of the Republic, its status in St. Louis is as firmly grounded as James Eads' span across the Mississippi. Beer made St. Louis. And he was right. Beer was indeed the lifeblood of St. Louis, and empires rose and fell because of the public's taste for a well-crafted brew. The Lemp family came to prominence in the middle 1800s as one of the premier brewing families of St. Louis. For years, they were the fiercest rival of Anheuser-Busch and the first makers of lager beer in the Midwest, but today, they're largely forgotten as actual people. They're more remembered today for the mansion they built than for the beer they once brewed. They've been reduced to roles as spooky characters in a horror story, rather than as the living, breathing personalities that shaped the history of the city. The history of the Limp family is a true American tragedy. It's one of triumph over opposition, hard work, perseverance, genius and madness, eccentricity and passion, horror, death, and suicide. It was played out against the backdrop of America's changing landscape of the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's also the story of the beer industry in St. Louis, the German immigrant experience, and a riveting look at the lives and deaths for those from whom money was truly no object. In 1926, author F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, Let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. Fitzgerald may not have been writing about the Limp family, but he could have been. The Limps were very different from you and me. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. This week, we're starting a multiple-episode narrative about the history and hauntings of the Lip family of St. Louis. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend that you begin the Limp story with this episode, which will serve as an introduction to the Limp family and their importance to St. Louis history. This may not be as ghost-filled as other episodes of the podcast, but please be patient with us. Hauntings cannot exist without the history, and the history of the Limp family is one that is filled with mystery, tragedy, and death, which are, of course, all the ingredients for the greatest ghost stories of St. Louis. Beer made St. Louis. There has never been a time in St. Louis's history when it's been a frontier station, fur trading outpost, hard living river town, and gateway to the west that there's not been beer in the city. 
dating back to 1809 when a man named John Kuhn set up a primitive brewery on the riverfront and continuing today, St. Louis is a city where beer is king. Over 200 breweries have existed in and around St. Louis during the past two centuries. Many were small, long-forgotten operations that only lasted a few years, while others grew to be national and international companies that are still in existence today. In 1809, just a few years after the ink had dried on the Louisiana Purchase Agreement, St. Louis was officially incorporated as a town. This was also the year that beer began to be brewed in the community. Beer in St. Louis had humble origins. It started with a few small two or three man operations that produced a dozen or so barrels a year that were sold in local taverns. And this was the general state of things until the latter part of the 1830s when a great influx of German settlers began moving into the region and the arrival of the Germans changed everything. Now that's not to say that the original French and American inhabitants of the city didn't like to drink. Oh, they did, producing hundreds of barrels of ales every year. But the Germans took things to a whole different level. Soon breweries and beer gardens began to open all over town and none of them suffered for a lack of customers. New breweries opened as the city's longtime residents began to join the newcomers in their appreciation for beer. One of the new operations belonged to Ezra English, who opened the St. Louis Brewery on the south side. It operated for 50 years and became one of the first to utilize the natural caves underneath the city for storing beer. Known as English Cave at what is now Benton Park, the subterranean beer garden was a place of ghostly legend and said to carry a curse on those who occupied it. And in the next episode of the podcast, we'll take a closer look at the mysterious caverns beneath St. Louis and the unlucky Ezra English and others who followed in his path, including the Limp family. The first real German lager beer was produced in St. Louis by Johann Adam Limp, likely around 1840. Lager beer was unlike any other beverage that was produced in the city at the time. It was a clean, crisp, sparkling beer that not only tasted better than the bitter, thick ales that were common in those days, but it also did not have to be consumed quite as quickly before it went bad. St. Louis was well suited to this type of beer making thanks to the natural caves under the city. Lager beer could be brewed during the winter months and stored in caves and cellars during the summer drinking season. With no artificial refrigeration at the time, the beer was cooled naturally by the cave's low temperatures, aided by blocks of ice that were cut from the frozen Mississippi River in the winter, hauled to the caves and packed in straw. By introducing lager beer to the city, Limp helped to start a revolution in the brewing industry, and he's rightly considered the father of modern brewing in St. Louis. And we'll come back to him in a minute. By 1850, St. Louis was home to 17 operating breweries, which produced about 60,000 barrels of beer every year. The city's population had now reached more than 77,000 souls, with German immigrants comprising at least 22,000 of them. In the middle to late 1850s, there was a radical shift in how Americans felt about beer. Prior to this, the country had been a nation of rum and whiskey, but the mid-19th century saw the first attempts made toward a national prohibition movement that would ban the manufacture and sale of all alcohol. While Americans reacted pretty violently toward the possibility of a dry nation, but did realize that maybe a change in its drinking habits was in order. This new introspection brought attention to the German-American lifestyle, to the beer gardens that welcomed entire families at happy gatherings, and to beer itself. German immigrants worked hard, lived respectively, and drank in moderation. They had embraced the American way of life and had prospered. They built churches, kept orderly homes, and owned their own businesses, all while drinking beer every day, multiple times a day. 
As the public image of beer changed, a new taste for German beer began to sweep the country. By the mid-1850s, beer saloons and beer gardens were lining the streets of American cities, both large and small. Men and women danced to German bands, listened to German choral groups, enjoyed opera, dramas, and comedians, and relaxed with refreshing glasses of fresh lager. The popularity of lager beer made it something that was no longer strictly for German Americans. It was now being consumed by everyone. As the beer began to flow, breweries opened everywhere, nearly all of them owned by Germans who hoped that lager would pave their way to wealth. In many cases, it did, and money began to be made in staggering amounts, creating empires for a lucky few. This era was a boom time for St. Louis brewers. The general acceptance and popularity of lager created a need for more breweries, and they began opening across the city. Well, this led directly into the Civil War era, another prosperous time for the city's beer makers. St. Louis was filled with troops who were traveling to and from enemy territory, bringing with them a multitude of prisoners, wounded men, refugees, escaped and freed slaves, camp followers, merchants, and assorted others connected to the war. Military clerks went from warehouses to stores, from butchers to bakers looking for supplies. Bricklayers, blacksmiths, carpenters, and stable hands arrived, all looking for and finding work. Soldiers guarded the docks, the railroads, the warehouses, and the arsenal, as well as the line of encampments located along the city's western edge. And every single one of these new arrivals needed beer. A doctor with the army wrote, I have never seen a city where there is as much drinking of liquor as here. Everybody almost drinks. Beer shops and gardens are numerous. The doctor, who was not an admirer of drink, blamed the wet condition of St. Louis on the Germans. But his disdain for the Germans and their beer was not shared by the majority. The Civil War in St. Louis became a conflict fought with beer. Military commanders banned all intoxicants, except lager beer, from their camps, and it soon became the drink of choice. Supply clerks contracted with brewers to provide the troops with lager, which traveled better and stayed fresher longer than ale. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers forged friendships over 10 cups of St. Louis lager, carrying their love for the brew home with them after the war. Lager even received the approval of the United States Sanitary Commission, a civil organization that was established to monitor the health of troops. A commission doctor who studied camp diets reported that lager drinkers suffered less diarrhea than those who did not drink beer. So there's another point in its favor. German brewers in St. Louis made a fortune, but at the end of the war, it meant a downturn in business. When the Confederacy surrendered in April 1865, the soldiers and supply clerks who'd been so thirsty for lager beer went home. Refugees began their journeys back to the South, and the carpenters, bricklayers, and builders packed their tools and started looking for the next job and the next town. The market for beer in the city was just about to take another dramatic turn. The end of the Civil War was a terrifying time for a man named Eberhard Anheuser, the owner of the troubled Bavarian brewery on the city's south side. Eberhard had become a brewer by accident. He had received the brewery as a repayment of debt and he was never really sure why he'd chosen to keep it. Already wealthy from manufacturing soap, it was not as if he needed a failing brewery. Whatever the reason, he made a go of the company, turning it into a lucrative business during the war, despite the horrible quality of his beer. When the war came to an end, he knew he was in trouble. His partner, a maker of patent medicines, sold out in 1864, and Eberhard was left to run the brewery on his own. He never claimed to know anything about beer. He could tell you anything you wanted to know about soap, but beer remained a mystery to him. Union soldiers and thirsty laborers had been willing to drink his beer, but the discriminating Germans of St. Louis refused to touch it. 
There was no need to settle for mediocre lager when there were a dozen other breweries in the city making far superior product for the same price. While Eberhard knew nothing about beer, but he'd become rich because he knew how to run a business. He knew that he needed help right away and he knew where to find it, with his talented and charismatic son-in-law, Adolphus Busch. Adolphus had arrived in St. Louis in 1857 when he was just 18 years old. He found work in the import-export business on the levee. Two years after arriving in the city, he began specializing in malts and hops for beer making, and as a supplier to Eberhard Anheuser, he had the chance to become friendly with the brewer and his family. Adolphus fell in love with Eberhard's blonde, curly-haired daughter, Alyssa, who went by the nickname of Lily. They were married on March 7, 1861. After the war with the brewery in trouble, he found someone to buy him out of the supply business and he used the funds to invest in the Bavarian brewery. The company was restructured. Eberhard continued as the president, but he turned most of his attention back to soap manufacturing. He placed the brewery in the capable hands of his son-in-law, who completely turned the business around over the next five years. He increased production and seized on the latest scientific and industrial innovations to make the company run more smoothly. He began pasteurizing the beer, which allowed the brewery to package, ship, and store beer with a much longer shelf life. He also invested in artificial refrigeration, which allowed them to store the beer in their warehouses and made the lagering caves obsolete. Under Adolphus's guidance, the brewery began bottling its beer in 1872. By 1883, he had become a full partner in the company, and the name was changed to the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Association. Adolphus was a consummate salesman, and he had dozens of tricks up his sleeve. He loved name-brand advertising. Before anyone else ever thought of such an idea, he gave away watch fobs, china, razors, cups, beer glasses, and every kind of novelty imaginable with the product name on them. One of the most popular promotional items was a jackknife that doubled as a corkscrew, a useful item since beer at that time was corked rather than capped. Another popular item was a tray embellished with a picture of the Anheuser-Busch Brewery with flags flying proudly from every cupola and tower. Seated in a prominent spot was a well-rounded young lady with only a modest wisp of a veil covering her lap. Her curves promoted the virtues of Bush beer. She was sort of the 19th century version of a bud girl. During his time with the company, Adolphus marketed and advertised Anheuser-Busch across the country. He created Budweiser and Michelob, which was then considered the best-tasting and most expensive beer in America, shipped product all over the world, participated in the 1893 and 1904 World's Fairs, and achieved permanent fame. Adolphus died in 1911 and was buried in a specially designed mausoleum in St. Louis's Bell Fountain Cemetery. Before his death, he saw Anheuser-Busch completely dominate both the St. Louis and national beer markets. But it had not always been that way. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Anheuser-Busch products were always the number two beer in St. Louis. They were not the local favorite. They were always a distant second to another family brewery that dated back even further in St. Louis history. It was that rival brewery that had been the first to ship local beer across the country in refrigerated rail cars, and the first to sell their beer overseas. They were even the first brewery to ever have their beer delivered by airplane. St. Louis's favorite brewery had always been the one owned by the Limps.
The story of the Limp Brewing Empire began in 1836 when Johann Adam Limp came to America. He lived for a time in Cincinnati and then came west to St. Louis. In 1838, Adam, he always went by his middle name, opened a small mercantile store at what is now Delmar and Sixth Streets in St. Louis. In addition to common household items, he sold vinegar and beer that he made himself. Both items were soon in great demand, so he opened a small plant and offered beer from a small pub called Limp's Hall, which was attached to the factory. The beer that Adam brewed was the first lager beer to be made in St. Louis and one of the first in the country, and it was soon in great demand. Business prospered, and by 1845, the popularity of the beer was enough to allow him to discontinue vinegar production and concentrate on beer alone. The company expanded rapidly, and in need of a place for a larger operation, plus a cool location in which to lager the beer, Adam purchased land above a limestone cave on the south side of the city. He hired men to excavate and enlarge the cave, making it suitable for casks of beer, as well as for large chunks of ice that were cut in the winter and used through the summer to lower the temperature of the beer. The new enterprise began as the Limp Western Brewing Company. It grew through the 1840s to become the largest brewery in the city. In 1848, Adam brought his wife, Justine, and his son, William, who had been born just before Adam left Germany, to America. He and Justine had two more children, a daughter named Mary and a son named John. In 1854, Justine died from yellow fever, and Adam later remarried Louise Bauer, who helped him to raise the children and remained with him until the end of his life. In just two decades, Adam Limp went from being a poor German immigrant to one of the wealthiest and most respected men in St. Louis. He died in August 1862 and left his thriving business in the hands of his son, William. Under his leadership, the company grew in ways that Adam could never have dreamed of. William Limp had been born in Germany in 1836. He spent his childhood there and was brought to St. Louis by his father at age 12. He was educated at St. Louis University and after graduation, he joined his father at Western Brewery. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he enlisted in the military and served with a pro-Union St. Louis Home Guard. His time in the military was uneventful, mostly spent guarding the St. Louis Arsenal, and he mustered out with the rank of Orderly Sergeant in November 1861. A few weeks later, on December 3rd, William married Julia Feichert, the daughter of Jacob Feichert, a St. Louis saloon owner and businessman. The following year was the first in a long line of tragedies for the Lemp family. In 1862, William and Julia's first child died at birth. Three years passed before Julia became pregnant again, and their oldest child, Anna, was born in 1865. Meanwhile, William, a compact man who stood just five feet one inch tall, threw his considerable energies into expanding the Western Brewery. He purchased a five-block area around the beer storage warehouse on Cherokee Street, located above the lagering caves, and began building a new brewery complex. By the 1870s, the Limp Factory was the largest in the city. A bottling plant was added in 1877, and artificial refrigeration was installed one year later. Limp had a fascination with progress and new inventions and constantly updated the operation. By the middle 1890s, Limp Beer was known all over America. The company's most popular line, Falstaff, was a favorite in St. Louis and across the country, a feat that had never been accomplished by a regional brewery before. Limp was the first brewery to establish coast-to-coast -coast distribution of its beer, shipping it out in refrigerated railroad cars. Within a few years, the brewery, ranked as the eighth largest in the country, had grown to the point that it employed over 700 men. As many as 100 horses were needed to pull the delivery wagons in St. Louis alone. Construction of new buildings and renovations of the current ones continued daily at the Limp Brewery. 
During the time of the Lint Brewery's greatest success, William also purchased a home for his family a short distance away from the brewery complex. The house was built by Jacob Fikert, Julia Limp's father, in 1868 and was likely financed by William. In 1876, William purchased it from his father-in-law's estate to be used as a residence and as an auxiliary brewery office. Although already an impressive home, William renovated and enlarged it until it became a showplace of the period. The mansion boasted elegant artwork, handcrafted wood decor, ornately painted ceilings, large, beautiful bathrooms, and even an elevator that was installed in 1904. It was a unique and wondrous place and one that was worthy of the first family of St. Louis Brewing. In addition to William's financial success, he was also well-liked and popular among the citizens of St. Louis. He was on the board of several organizations, including the planning committee of the 1904 World's Fair and many others. His family life was happy, his sons were involved in the business, his daughters were beautiful, and life was good. Of course, William had no idea of the tragedy that lay ahead for the family. In the midst of all of their happiness and success, events began that eventually led to their downfall. While most of what we know about the Limps focuses on a few family members and their unfortunate deaths, they were a complex, fascinating, and often troubled family. They have been the subject of strange rumors, perplexing myths, and outright lies over the years. So here's a little closer look at the Limp family, along with a couple of oddities that really need to be addressed before our story can continue. William and Julia's first surviving child was Anna, born in 1865. She was 18 years older than her youngest sibling, Elsa, but the two women were close throughout Elsa's life. Anna lived in St. Louis for many years, but later moved to New York with her husband, Alexander Conta, a businessman, banker, stockbroker, playwright, and influential dabbler in politics. Anna and Alexander had one son, Jeffrey, who later became personal attorney to newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst. During her life, Anna wrote two books and was well-known in New York society. Among her closest friends was Evelyn Walsh McLean, owner of the infamous Hope Diamond. She traveled all over the world, spending many years in Asia, Australia, and Europe. She reportedly once met with the Dalai Lama during her travels. She died in 1939, having lived a full and exciting life. William Jacob Limp Jr., or Billy, as he was known to his family and friends, was born in 1867. He attended public school, graduated from Washington University, and attended the prestigious United States Brewing Academy in New York. When he returned home, he became vice president of the William Limp Brewing Company when it was incorporated in 1892. Billy never planned to take over the business from his father. He didn't want to be stuck running the brewery for the rest of his life, so he was thrilled to leave that responsibility to his younger brother, Frederick, who was passionate about beer and brewing in a way that his brother never was. Billy wasn't involved in a lot of businesses during his lifetime, real estate, banking, power and light companies, and telephone utilities, just to name a few. To those who only knew Billy through his business interests, he came across as a serious and intent young man, cool, crisp, 
honorable, and all business. He was a small, compact man like his father, who worked hard and yet took advantage of the extravagant wealth that his father's lucrative business offered him. But there was another side to Billy that his family and friends knew. To them, he was an eccentric, often reckless man with an obsession with guns and, according to some, with violence. His pals knew him as a fun-loving playboy who would go to the limit for those he liked. He was a hard drinker and brawler and was quick to use his fists on nights when he and his companions went out to close down the bars. He was a fearsome fighter despite his short stature and he wrecked several saloons while drinking. His family connections and wealth always kept him out of trouble. Billy loved liquor, women, and racehorses, and not necessarily in that order. After moving out of the family home, Billy maintained a house directly across the street. He was a colorful and flamboyant man with a taste for fine, flashy things. He filled the house with Asian furnishings and art, as well as curios, furs, draperies, ivory, and bronze objects that he picked up on trips to the Far East. Perhaps more than any of his other brothers and sisters, Billy took the greatest advantage of the money that we made from the family business. It was often said that even though he had many interests and many obsessions, his greatest passion was living life to the hilt and spending his great fortune on himself and his friends along the way. In 1899, the carefree bachelor decided to get married. And what was perhaps the most extravagant ceremony in St. Louis society history, Billy was wed to one of those beautiful young women in the city, Lillian Hanlon. Not only did the marriage connect the families of two prominent local businessmen, Lillian's father, Alexander, made his fortune manufacturing fixtures for railroad passenger cars, it also brought together two of the city's most eligible young people. But from the beginning, it was a far from perfect marriage. The Hanlons were devout Catholics and the Limps were Lutherans. In those days, a mixed faith marriage was almost unheard of. Perhaps they thought they could overcome their differences, but after the birth of their son, it became a constant battle over which faith he would be raised in. But that was not their biggest problem. Their clashes occurred because they were both selfish, eccentric, outgoing individuals with fiery tempers who were used to having everything their own way. The marriage was a disaster almost from the start and only lasted until 1906 when it ended in one of the most scandalous courtroom trials in St. Louis history. But that, along with Billy's tragic death, will be part of another episode. Born in January 1870, Lewis Limp's greatest life achievements had nothing to do with beer. Although the Limp Brewing Company had made him a wealthy man, he earned his reputation in the sporting and political arenas. Lewis was certainly qualified to be a brewer. He'd learned the trade in Germany and held positions on the board of his father's company. But he sold his shares in 1906 and moved to New York, where he lived for the rest of his life. Lewis was active in St. Louis politics as a younger man, but loved breeding and racing horses. He kept a stable of magnificent show horses and financially backed the very first horse show in the city's history, which was held at the St. Louis Coliseum. He later went into the racing business and amassed a substantial fortune with a number of winning horses. Lewis and his wife Agnes had one child, Louise, who was born in 1909. She later married her cousin, Edwin Pabst, the son of Hilda Limp Pabst and Gustav Pabst. Louise was raised in Paris and became a well-known illustrator, widely regarded for her portraits. Brother Charles was born in 1871 and never had much of a role in the family business. He had a token position with the company that made most of his money in banking and real estate. He was a lifelong bachelor who lived in the Limp family home until 1911 when it was renovated to become offices for the brewery. He moved to the St. Louis Racquet Club after that and became the vice president of the German Savings Institution. 
He also spent many years at the Liberty Central Trust and then went into the automobile insurance business and was a pioneer in that field in the 1920s. Charles made his own fortune and was largely unaffected by prohibition, which closed the Lint Brewery, and by the Depression. He was also active in St. Louis politics and was a powerful member of the local Democratic Party. And like so many other members of his family, he loved to travel. He visited Spain, Italy, England, and went on safaris in West Africa. He was an avid art collector and owned many original pieces by Picasso, Salvador Dali, and Georgia O'Keeffe. In the late 20s, Charles moved back into the family mansion, reverting it back into a residence. Charles had always been an eccentric, but his return to the Lent Mansion seemed to aggravate that condition. He developed a number of strange habits and quirks. For instance, he only allowed his staff to use round ice cubes because they hated the sound of ice clinking in a glass. He became obsessed with germs and often showered five or six times a day. Any Monday that he handled had to be washed. Guests were not allowed to wear shoes inside of the house. They had to be left at the front door, and the staff always polished them before they left. Charles hated the smell of coffee and refused to let it be served in the house, but he woke up every morning at 5 a.m., and any overnight guests were expected to get up at the same time. Charles would knock on their doors until they were awake and out of bed. Actor Vincent Price was a close friend of Charles Lemp and stayed at the mansion many times. One has to wonder what Vincent Price thought of the early morning wake-up knock. Charles became increasingly reclusive as he got older and eventually no visitors were allowed in the house. He wandered the place alone, aided only by his last two staff members. His only company was a pet parrot and his German shepherd, Serva, named after the short-lived near beer that the Lemps had manufactured just before Prohibition. In his later years, he developed arthritis and walked hunched over and was in constant pain. Then in 1949, his eccentricities and chronic pain finally caught up with him, as we'll hear in a later episode. Although Billy was named vice president of the brewing company when it was incorporated in 1892, he was not his father's first choice to take over the business someday. That honor was to go to his younger brother, Frederick. Frederick had been born in 1873 and was named for William's close friend, Milwaukee brewer Frederick Pabst. William and Frederick were always very close, and more so than his brothers, Frederick was fascinated with all of the inner workings of the brewery. Everything that he did was to prepare him for running the company after his father retired. He earned a degree in mechanical engineering from Washington University, graduated from the United States Brewing Academy, and worked with his father on the day-to-day -day operations of the brewery. In 1889, Frederick, then 25, married Irene Verdon. He was a hardworking and ambitious man, but deeply in love with his wife. Utterly devoted to Irene and to work, he still made time for his many friends and was prominent in the city's social circles. In 1900, the couple had a daughter, Marion. Frederick continued to throw himself into his work. He was dedicated to the expansion of the brewery and worked long hours, setting up the distribution networks and developing marketing and advertising plans. And in the summer of 1901, he began suffering from health problems. The doctor said it was from overwork and recommended a vacation. He and his family temporarily moved to Pasadena, California, and Frederick slowly began to recover. William and Julia traveled to California to visit, and Frederick seemed more like his old self. William returned home to St. Louis, confident that his beloved son was on his way to a full recovery and would soon be back to work at the brewery. But Frederick never returned to St. Louis alive, as we'll discover in our next episode. Not much is known about Hilda Limp, William and Julia's second daughter, who was born in 1875. 
But in 1897, the golden-haired young woman left home to marry into the Pabst family. Gustav Pabst undoubtedly met Hilda through the connection that existed between the Pabst and Lip families. No records exist to say if this was an arranged marriage or one of romance, although it's suspected it may have been the latter. The wedding was expected to take place in St. Louis in the fall of 1897. However, Gustav became impatient and pursued his fiancée to Europe, where the Limps were vacationing that summer. He convinced her to advance the wedding date, and they were married in a simple ceremony on the Isle of Wight in the English Channel. After they were married, Hilda moved to Milwaukee where she lived in splendor with her new husband. After the death of his father in 1904, Gustav took over the leadership of the Pabst Brewery until 1921. He then turned his attentions to real estate and served on the boards of several Milwaukee businesses and banks. In his later years, he was a respected conservationist and devoted his time to breeding upland game birds and hosting cattle. Hilda and Gustav had three sons, William, Gustav Jr., and Edwin, who later married Louise Limp, the daughter of Hilda's brother, Louis. Hilda passed away in 1951. Born in 1880, Edwin was the youngest son in the Limp family, and while he served the brewery for a number of years, he eventually retreated into a life of books, nature, and outdoor living. A handsome, friendly boy, he grew into a quiet, withdrawn young man who became disillusioned with the world. In 1913, his unhappiness led him to abandon his hectic life and leave the business world for good. He lived off his many investments for the rest of his life, residing in a sprawling arts and crafts style mansion in the woods near Kirkwood, Missouri. He filled the house with works of art, books, and built a gourmet kitchen, becoming an expert chef. He had a large atrium filled with one of the largest tropical bird collections in the country. He kept exotic animals on his estate and was a well-known benefactor to the St. Louis Zoo. In fact, it was through Edwin that the zoo received its very first lion. As he grew older, Edwin became increasingly reclusive. Unlike his brother Charles, who preferred his own company, Edwin was frightened of being alone. Perhaps his family's legacy of death and despair, of which he never spoke, haunted him during the lonely hours of the night. Because of this, he always kept a companion with him at his remote estate. His most loyal was a man named John Bopp, who lived on the estate for the last 30 years of Edwin's life. During those years, it's believed that John was never away from the estate for more than a total of five days. Edwin's peaceful life was a sharp contrast to the lifestyle of the other limps, and he'll also return in a later episode. Born in 1883, Elsa was the last of the Limp children. While only three years younger than brother Edwin, she was 18 years younger than her oldest sister, Anna. She was always the baby of the family and lived a very different life than her older sisters and brothers. She was beloved by them all, but instead of becoming spoiled as many last-born children do, she became an independent, resilient young woman who made the most of her short and often turbulent life. Elsa was only 23 when her mother died in 1906. Julia Limp had inherited her husband William's entire estate, which was divided among the children when she passed away from cancer. This made Elsa the wealthiest unmarried woman in St. Louis when she claimed one-seventh of the vast estate. Under the terms of Julia's will, Elsa received an additional $100,000 when she married. Always a headstrong free thinker, she joined the suffrage movement, working hard for the women's right to vote. She became the founder of the First Suffragist Society in St. Louis. She was also fascinated with spiritualism, which was in its heyday at the time. She held many seances at the Limp Mansion during the time when it was a private residence and became friends with Pearl Curran, the St. Louis woman who channeled the spirit of Patience Worth. The most eligible heiress in the city became even wealthier in 1910 when she married Thomas Wright, 
the president of the Moore Jones Brass and Metal Company. The ceremony was a small but opulent affair. Elsa's dress, which she paid for herself along with her wedding ring, was a worth original. After the wedding, they took a year-long honeymoon traveling to Cairo, Bangladesh, Calcutta, Bombay, and Nairobi. When Elsa traveled, she took along 28 pieces of Louis Vuitton luggage. When they returned to St. Louis, the couple moved into a beautiful home in Horton's Place, one of the private neighborhoods in St. Louis's Central West End. Elsa's independent nature and her husband's dismissive attitude did not mix well, and their marriage was a stormy one from the start. They had frequent screaming matches that often turned violent. During one such episode, Elsa hit Thomas with a vase, opening a large gash in his forehead. Wright was unfaithful to Elsa almost from the start of their marriage. Once she caught him in bed with one of the servants and chased him down the street, wielding a fireplace poker. After finding him in bed with yet another woman, she got into her Pierce Arrow automobile and rammed it into his prized Duesenberg three times. It was not uncommon for the staff to find broken pieces of china and shattered furniture when they came on duty in the morning. Elsa had one child, a little girl, who was tragically stillborn. She blamed her husband for the baby's death, and eventually they separated in 1918. On February 1st of 1919, Elsa filed for divorce. In her petition to the court, she stated that her husband had destroyed her peace and happiness by his conduct and had long since ceased to love her. She also stated that Thomas treated her with coldness and indifference and absented himself from their home to avoid her. All these things, according to the papers that were filed, caused her great mental anguish and impaired her physical health. There were no details ever made public. Whatever was in those papers, the case was expedited so that within an hour after it was filed, a divorce was granted on the grounds of general indignities. Elsa spent the next year alone, traveling and visiting with friends and family. At some point, she reconnected with her former husband. They traveled together for a time and eventually they reconciled. On March 8, 1920, they were remarried in New York City and then returned to St. Louis and a home filled with flowers from friends and well-wishers. A few days later, Elsa was dead. While her death is generally considered a suicide, there are many questions that remain, and we'll be taking a closer look at her death in an upcoming episode. of the rest of it. Of course, there are cousins and family members that are connected to the Lemp family. William did have a sister and a brother who lived separate lives from the immediate family, and William's children had children of their own, creating descendants who are still alive today. But Lemp imposters have been around since the time when the Lemp Brewery was still in its heyday. In 1901, a man entered a downtown St. Louis jewelry store and identified himself as William Limp Jr. He asked for the largest diamond ring in the store and then told the owner, I'll take it with me now and you can send the bill to the brewery. He pawned the diamond and vanished without a trace. And then there's the case of Andrew Paulson, who I got to know pretty well. He first showed up in St. Louis and contacted me back in 2010. He claimed to be one of the last living descendants of the Limp family and boy was he convincing. 
Not only did he have the keys to the Limp Mausoleum in Bellfountain Cemetery, he had a painting created by Louise Limp and a lot of assorted memorabilia, authentic clothing, jewelry, household items, even furniture that really seemed to belong to the Limp family. He gave tours of St. Louis, offered talks inside of the Limp Mausoleum, did appearances at the Limp Mansion, and contacted me about correcting some of the myths that were being told about the Limp family. And I have to be honest, he was convincing. He had letters, photographs, and documentation that seemed to back up his story. I spent hours going through records, looking over antiques, clothing, postcards, and jewelry. He presented me with gifts that he told me once belonged to the Limps. He even let me take home some of the boxes of stuff that I was allowed to photograph and examine. Aside from selling a few tickets to lectures and tours and selling a few items on eBay, I never saw that any money was being made from what appears to have been a very elaborate deception. But as far as I knew, he was the real thing. And then his story started to unravel. He'd always been a little vague, but it boiled down to the fact that his father was the illegitimate son of Anne Marie Conta, the granddaughter of Anna Limp. Andrew loved to tell stories about his glamorous grandmother. I'd heard plenty. But the problem was that Anne Marie died in 1973, which was 13 years before Andrew was born. For me, the first warning sign was a letter I got from an attorney for one of Anne Marie's daughters. There were two of them, neither of them had children, warning me about Andrew's story. When I asked Andrew about it, he dismissed it and told me the guy was nuts. As it turned out, Anne Marie's daughter was not the only one asking questions and asking for proof that he was actually a descendant of the Limps. At first he stonewalled, then threatened legal action, then he disappeared. Honestly, I have no idea what became of him. But the thing is, I did like the guy. Now I just feel sorry for him. Why would someone go to the trouble to create such an elaborate fiction to get attention and sell a few things on eBay is a mystery to me. And sorry, it's one I can't solve for you. Now, I know what some listeners are probably thinking. What about the other limp child? What about Zeke, the so-called monkey boy who was kept in the attic of the limp mansion? How could we do an episode about the limp family without mentioning this notorious relative? Well, I'm mentioning him but it's done with reluctance. And this will be the last mention of him that we will be making during the podcast. I almost hate to even add to the story because even the mention of the monkey boy name in some way perpetrates the myth that he ever existed at all. There was no monkey boy. He never existed. Despite rumors, legends, and outright lies that appeared in books on the internet and during tours of the Limp Mansion, there was absolutely never a monkey boy and the Limps never had a child named Zeke. I have no idea how this story started. Wait a minute. Yes, I do. Someone made it up. There are several versions of the story, of course. One claims that the boy, who was born intellectually disabled, was the illegitimate son of Billy Limp, the child of an affair with a servant girl he was kept locked in the attic of the house away from the prying eyes of the public. Occasionally, a passerby saw his deformed face peering out of the attic window, and the legend of the monkey boy, or the monkey-faced boy, was born. Others claim the child was a sibling of Billy, born to William and Julia Limp during less enlightened times, and due to his handicap, he was locked in the attic where he eventually died. Still others claim that Zeke was the child of a servant with no connection to the Limps other than that Julia Limp provided a place for him to live in the attic rather than have him turned over to an institution. But really, the truth is he never existed at all. The Monkey Boy story was concocted by a phony psychic who claimed that his ghost communicated with her in the attic of the house. That's it. And that's a neat trick considering 
that he never existed. But it's a lurid tale and one that's easily spread to the gullible people who believe anything. The same people who perpetrate the legend of the monkey boy have also erroneously claimed on occasion that the limp home was once used as a school or an orphanage. Other erroneous facts have been passed along by these same sources, each allegedly gleaned from behind-the-scenes knowledge of the limp mansion that are too numerous and silly to recount. But what of the monkey boy? Well, it's unfortunate that such a tale has managed to take root in the history of the house, and even more unfortunate that so many people are willing to believe it. It's a tale with no substance or truth, and yet it's been allowed to damage the character of the Limp family for years. It's sad that the story has been accepted as fact when absolutely no evidence of it exists other than that it's a terrible piece of bad fiction. It's true that you can't slander the dead, so people are allowed to say whatever they like about the departed limps without consequence, but honestly, I think a family that created the kind of empire that the limps did deserve a little bit better from people who claim to hold them in such high regard. So with this episode, we have scratched the surface of the Limp story, introducing the family and setting the stage for the episodes to come. Be sure to return when we continue with the history of the Limps and their rise and fall in the weeks to come. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 19, which is the sixth episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Oh, hey, well, hey, well, that was a long one. Uh, I know, yes. I know, I know. Uh, it was pretty long, so everybody's had to uh, sit here and listen to me do that now for like the last eight hours. No, it hasn't been that long. I had to, li- <laughs> I had to listen <laughs> way longer Yeah, than I that. think everyone had meals and naps, So, because uh, you're here, uh, Lisa's here, Lux is here, uh, and I don't think Lux paid any attention to any of it at all, but just, you know. I think it, okay. it actually put I her to sleep. Her. So, but yeah, it might have. It might have put her down for a nap. Uh, but anyway, um, so we should probably let's let's kind of get jumping into this a little bit and uh, and, and kind of go from there. It's um, the beginning of a doozy. This is the beginning of a doozy. Well, actually, this was a doozy. Right, so, yeah. you know, this this in itself was kind of a doozy. And and as I said at the beginning of it, I know this was a I think I mentioned the word ghost perhaps twice during yeah. the <laughs> during the opening. But. Um, I know this was a pretty ghost-free episode, but it won't stay that way, obviously. I mean, we do have a plan for this. It's just there are so many things that have to be established when you're going into something that is this big of a part of Mm -hmm. St. Louis haunted history. You've really got to have, you know, um, all of the history behind it. Right. And establish who everybody is um, and establish... You know what's going on? What's the what's the stage? What's how do things look at this time period? And then we'll we'll build slowly and things. Well, we say, I say we build slowly, but honestly, things just sort of go downhill from here. Yes. So all you downhill know, from uh, here. It, it's all downhill from here, and ending up with you know 
probably a fourth episode of you know all of the the ghost related material from mm-hmm. this story with you know all of the suicides and the the bad luck and the tragedy and everything that precedes it um what we think will be episode three so yep. uh we got one more episode to go which is going to be some some interesting stuff um a lot of stuff on the on the you know the importance of the limps and then riding right into some of the mysterious things with the caves and things that people don't i i a lot of people don't realize, mm-hmm. you know, just how much of that there is. So anyway, hang with us. Yeah. <laughs> hang with us. There's a lot to go. And you're uh, and, and you're gonna eventually dive into to some of your personal experiences yeah. with oh, some yeah. of these places. Yeah, we'll talk about some of that and too. It, yeah. it, this story, like Troy said, there's not a lot of ghosts right in the beginning, but I promise you it is entertaining and it it's like if Shakespeare wrote Gatsby or something, and there, there is suicide, <laughs> yeah. there is tragedy, there's, there's a lot going on. So, yeah, yeah bear with us. We're going to lay the foundation here, and uh, we'll get started. See well, me. and I guess in, in, in the tone of, and speaking of, you know, hanging in there because there's a lot more ghosts coming, um, we do have something else that's coming. I guess the big announcement we have um, up to, uh, or re- instead of just the conference, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, um, the big announcement we have is on April 13th is the release of the new edition, the new updated, revised 2018 edition of my book, Haunted St. Louis. Uh, comes out on April 13th. Um, I didn't realize how long it had been since I had done the original. Um, it's been it's like 16 years ago. Oh, wow. And I didn't realize the book was that old, yeah. um, that it had been around that long. But it was one of those things where I had a lot of updated material, a lot of new material, stuff that not only has never been in any of my books before, but it's never been in anybody's books before, um, that you can't even find information about it online kind of stuff. Nice. Um, so I've got a lot of new St. Louis stuff in the book that's included. And um, anyway, it comes out on Friday the 13th. Perfect. And uh, yeah, that's what I thought too. That worked out good on the days. Um, and we do have a deal. If you're if you're a podcast listener, you can actually get ten percent off the book price if you order it from our online store. All you have to do is when you order, use the promo code podcast when you're checking out, and uh, when you do, you'll get the automatic discount. So we thought they'd throw that in there for people who are hanging with us with the podcast and who've been along with us for. 19 plus episodes i guess if you count our extras it's like in the 20s but right um anybody that's been hanging with us that long we feel like we owe them something so absolutely you know, there and, you and, go and, and, and in that book uh i've read most of it and it talks about all, all the episodes you've heard from this season there's at least parts of them have been pulled yeah from yeah. that book so yep. you can learn yeah. even more um and also i just i also want to mention that um for these next few episodes um troy also has a book called suicide and spirits oh right all about My the limp, limp family the limp book yeah um, yeah, yeah so if you want to catch up on that um yeah as you can tell from anything that i devoted multiple episodes to it yes. is a bit of an obsession of mine so um as as you're going to hear as the you know the season on st louis continues on so right all right so we're ready to dive in sure okay sure. so i'm going to start out saying we're going to do our best to not clear up the rumors but present the facts essentially yeah, yeah that's that's was kind of the idea behind a lot of this i mean it was the idea when i when i did the suicide and spirits book uh the idea was is that i have heard some of that stuff so many times like a, a certain you know monkey boy right. uh that i i absolutely knew wasn't true mm-hmm. you know and um and there are other things too um i'll clear up some other rumors uh also as things go on especially when it pertains to the suicides and the deaths of some of the 
I say characters. They're not really characters, but they have become like characters. That's that's the whole problem yeah. here. Um, people don't even realize that, you know, how many children there were. They only know about the suicides that happened. They don't realize that William and Julie had all of these other children who lived pretty normal lives. You know, um, people forget about that, and they just. You know, they, they always assume that when you've got several members of the same family who've committed suicide, they must have all been crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say they were all crazy. They were definitely different. And I think that's why that quote has always stuck with me when it comes to talking about the limbs. Yeah. You know, the quote from Fitzgerald about the, the very rich are different than you and me. And they are. And this is a case of where you have a family who had more money than we can comprehend. Um if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you take some of the, the amounts of money that they were making every year and convert that into modern dollars, um, you know, they were, they were billionaires. I mean, they, they had money. They could literally, you know, start their fires with money if they wanted to. I mean, and wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. I mean, this was just unbelievable wealth. And with that kind of wealth, I mean, as we've all seen, on Instagram on a regular basis, people with that kind of wealth um, can be unusual people. They do not live in the same world that the rest of us live Especially in. Especially when you inherit that wealth, too. Well, exactly, like, exactly. Know? And, you know, this was a case of where, you know, they had a, a, a grandfather or, a, a you know, a father, a patriarch with Adam who created a, a pretty nice substantial business, but it was William that turned it into an empire. Yeah. I mean, it was his genius. It was his ingenuity and his, um, you know, his obsession with technology and that kind of thing that just kept, you know, he incessantly, you know, renovated and updated and, and did things at the factory to keep changing things and bringing it more into the future. And that, I think, is was one of the really big keys to their success. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than they were putting out a superior beer yeah. to what other people were putting out at the time. Um, you know, Anheuser-Busch, I mean, Budweiser was the first thing that came along that they were putting out. I mean, at one time they were putting out, they had 14 or 18 different lines of beer. And then with Budweiser and Michelob and Faust and a couple of others, that they, they really just kind of cut it down because they couldn't compete with Lemp, who only had like a half a dozen different lines, but they... Falstaff was so popular that nobody could compete with it. Mm -hmm. And so people stopped trying and they were making just astronomical amounts of money. Yeah. And that, that you live your life differently under those circumstances. And, you know, they, they came into prominence during, you know, what Mark Twain called the Gilded Age. We talked about that in past episodes. Mm -hmm. And this was a time when empires were being built around the country because we were in such America was in such a, a change after the Civil War, you know, leading up into the, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the turn of the century. You know, things were changing so much. People were, you know, these steel factories were being built, creating millionaires. You know, the banks, the railroads, the, the breweries. I mean, that was, that was the German-American, you know, cash cow. You know, for these immigrants who were coming to this country, the ones who made it rich, all the brewers who made it rich, they were all German. And they all had, you know, a handful of things in common. They were, you know, they were all very hardworking. They were very studious. They, they, they bore down and stuck to the task. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'd made sort of a joke about how, the, you know, they, they were living the American dream and they were drinking beer all day. That's not, that's not a, 
an exaggeration. I mean, you had beer for breakfast, you had beer for lunch, you had beer for supper. Everybody in the family, I mean, kids, everybody had beer. Sounds great. And during, well, and the guys who worked at the factory were required to drink a certain amount of beer at work every day. That was a requirement. And if you didn't do it, you would get in trouble if you didn't have your quota of beer, if you didn't have a glass of beer at certain times of the day, because beer was food. That was the way that they looked at it. And I think that was something that they often would say, beer is food. I mean, it, it it was seen as a nutritional thing. And the more beer you drank, within reason, of course, the more beer you drank, um, you know, the better you would work, the harder you worked. At That's your how job. I look Especially, at it. Well, but when you're making beer, yeah, you know, why not? You know, you got to so, really get into the product, exactly, you know, and understand exactly. it. All the so, ins and outs. you know, this was this was you know fortunes were being made. A lot of tycoons came out of beer. this era, oh, absolutely. you know, and yes, yeah. that makes sense. All right, so I like to start these episodes off a lot of times uh, with a summary of what's going on. I can't exactly do that with this one because there's there's way too much, <laughs> too much going on. However, um, I had to draw this out a few times to kind of wrap my mind around it. So I wanted to kind of sum up a little bit the family tree of the people that we're going to be talking about. And Troy can kind of correct me as we go. I'm going to try to fly through this as fast as I can, but just so get everybody on the same page and so I can kind of understand a little bit better. So the Limp family. We start, uh, our story begins with um, Johan Adam Limp whom I refer to as G. Paul Limp, because he's the grandpa of the group, started selling groceries, beer, vinegar in the uh, 1830s, um, had three children, Mary, John, and William. And William Limp, I'm going to refer to as Papa Limp, because he's kind of one of the main characters of, of our story here. He married a woman named Julia Feichert, and they had nine children. Eight of them we're going to talk more extensively about in this. Um, the oldest of those children, Anna, was a world traveler, author, uh, married a man named Alexander Kanta, who was a businessman, playwright, politics. Um, and we're going to go to William Jacob Limp Jr., who's the oldest son, ended up being the vice president of the company, but never really wanted to take over. Uh, he really liked to party. He really <laughs> liked to spend money. Uh, had a tragic death that we'll talk about later. Uh, married Lillian Handlin, whose father was a prominent businessman. And also had a son named William Limp III, who will come into play later. Then uh, we have Lewis Limp, who actually sold his shares and moved away. And liked to raise horses, made money outside the family business. Uh, and let's see, married Agnes. They had a child named Louise, who ended up marrying her cousin, Edwin, who co- comes into play again later. Charles Limp, um, who just really makes me upset later. We'll talk about that. He was a lifelong bachelor. Yeah, he made you upset for reasons that is a myth, but go ahead. Okay, well, then th- <laughs> these are the things we're going we're gonna to talk about. The dog is what makes me upset, yeah, so we can myth, talk about that. All right, okay, true. okay, yeah. good. But uh, he moved back to the family home eventually and seemed very odd. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into that. Then there's Frederick Limp, who was uh, the father's favorite, essentially, and first choice to take over the company. Married Irene Verdon, had a daughter named Marion, uh, got sick, and it's a whole thing that kind of changed everything. Everything. Yeah. Uh, then Hilda Limp, the one we don't know too much about, but she married a man named Gustav Pabst. Is that PBR? Yes. Okay. Yeah, his father was Frederick Pabst, who nice. invented Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. Awesome. Yeah. So and they the- were. Frederick and William were very tight. Awesome. So yeah. all those and can- he'll play. There'll be more about him later. Of too. course. And the, yeah. so those cans I pay a dollar for at uh, <laughs> downtown. Right. Then we have Edwin Limp. Uh, was the youngest son. He was a recluse. Had arts and crafts mansion type thing in the woods near Kirkwood. Uh, and 
I also believe did some very crazy things uh, after his death. And we can dive into this later, but I have some very specific questions about Edwin. Uh, and then well, we'll talk more about him later. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, Elsa Limp. So the baby also very tragic, uh, did some really cool stuff like holding seances and reference uh, Pearl and Patience yeah, from my, one of our other favorite, episodes. My favorite limp. Right. Yes. And then, yeah, married Thomas Wright. It took a year long honeymoon, all that. So did I get everybody kind of right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, awesome. We're good. Awesome. So okay. is Elsa coming up in a later episode? Yes. I heard you say. Yes, okay. I did they talk all about are. her. I did talk about her quite a bit. Yeah, every well, not all oh, of them. Yeah. We won't talk much about Lewis, um, much okay. or Anna, or even Hilda. Um, the others will come up okay. more, and we'll talk more about Elsa for sure. I just um, feel like I have a connection with Elsa. She's but my maybe favorite. She's, I mean, maybe we just share some similar views. But yeah, I'll just I, wait. she's yeah, I'll just she's wait. she's my favorite. We'll talk more about her in episode three. Okay, uh, of the limp thing because we're gonna have to talk more about her very mysterious death mm -hmm. um her her death is the one that really bothers me the most right. because there are a lot of unanswered questions so but anyway and it probably just bothers me because she's my favorite i, yeah. I don't you know i don't I, so far she's my is, favorite so, too yeah. i'm a fan yeah uh so like we said this is going to be a lot of this episode laying the groundwork foundation giving some history and backstory so but there are a couple of things that we want to address uh quickly and so i'm going to jump into one because i we want to get it out of the way. I know you don't want to talk about it after this, so we're just going to Yeah, this is the last episode for the Monkey Boy. So tell That's me about, yes, about, this, so. and this is, okay, I understand this is, it's already offensive for a lot of different There's reasons. There's a lot of reasons why it's offensive. Yes, and yeah. so we're not poking fun at anybody, and I, if I laugh, it's only because I'm uncomfortable and that's how I deal with things, but tell me about <laughs> this illegitimate son who they people say was autistic well, and other there, things but that there they wasn't, call. Well, but there wasn't one. That's yes, my point. Tell, tell There's me. nothing to tell. I mean, this story, this is not an old story. This is a story it's that not just old. got started within the last probably 25 years or so Re that recently and there was a, a a woman who purported to be a psychic and who claimed that she had communications with the the ghost of the monkey boy in the attic of the house that's it there are no records there are no old stories there's no family memories there's no staff members who used to work for the limps who saw this eerie face peering out of the attic window this is all solely a made-up story and for whatever reason um, because that's what people do um, people got excited about this story and and just ran with it I mean I guess it's the same reason people used to go to freak shows in the 40s I guess mm -hmm. you know is that here's this you know as if this is a, as if the story isn't strange enough and as you know, as if the limps already aren't don't have this terrible reputation for being crazy and all this stuff, which I've tried to correct so many times over the years. Yes, odd, you know, but whose family isn't? Yeah. What family wouldn't be with all that money? Right. Um, yeah. You know, but this is not a group of crazy people. This isn't a group of people who, you know, lock their you know disabled child in the attic. It, that's what I think. That's what I find more offensive about it than anything. And you know what? Let me let me draw a parallel to it. Um, there is a story, also n absolutely not true, about the Myrtles Plantation in Louisiana, mm -hmm. about how it's haunted by the ghost of this slave named Chloe who poisoned the wife and two children of the guy who owned the place because he'd been having sex with her for years. 
and she was angry because he got tired of her and sent her back out of the of the house and she listened indoors and he cut her ear off all this crap okay it's this huge elaborate story not a word of it's true none not a single bit they never owned a slave named chloe she didn't murder anybody there the the children and the wife who supposedly died from poison died a year apart from each other from uh, an epidemic from a yellow fever epidemic so that never happened but yet that's what everybody remembers when you hear about the myrtles plantation what do you hear about the stupid chloe story which isn't true it's absolutely not true it's been proven to be not true um i mean i've had it i've had it documented proof on my website since the early 2000s doesn't matter still pops up i see it on twitter all the time uh, about this this ghost the monkey boy is the same thing somebody made this story up Somebody thought it sounded good, and they've just run with it, and you can't get rid of it. This story just will not die. Yeah. And I don't understand why, because the records of this family aren't hard to find. They're out there. It's all They're easy well known. to find. They're well known. And um, yet, for whatever reason, people just want to keep you know, perpetrating this myth. And it, it bugs me. It bugs me because it's offensive to the limps. It's offensive to... Anybody who listens to this story about, you know, this handicapped kid locked in the attic, that's offensive. Um, the fact that people just keep telling this story, I think, offends me more than anything because yeah. they have to know it's not true. And, and, and I, I know that a lot of people retell it because they've heard it from someone who claims it's true. Yeah. And people sometimes will believe anything. Not everyone, but some people will believe anything. But there's no truth to the story. Yeah. Not at all. And I heard it in, uh, I watched a few, uh, you know, quote unquote, documentaries about right. the, the it, it was always the Limp Mansion. I was trying to find information on the Limp family. Couldn't mm -hmm. do it. It was the Haunted no, Limp Mansion. No, because too much work and, to actually do some research. And in every every one of those, I think there were three of them that I actually was able to, to stand. Um, they mentioned... Each one of them said, this is not based in fact, and there is no proof, and then they'd tell the monkey boy story. Yeah, right. And I mean, so even if you say, why tell it? Exactly. This and they all point? acknowledge yeah. that point. Yeah. So I think they all probably got it from the same source material or something saying, you know, there's no proof here, but it was... <laughs> I wonder what the source material was. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was terrible. Uh, oh, geez. Okay, so we're putting that to bed. We're not going to talk yeah, about no that anymore. no more monkey boy. So, um, yeah. I don't want to. I have something to add, maybe, but you can cut it out if you want to. Early on in my ghost hunting career it's not a career but my hobby is ghost hunter you see things on tv and you find that to be your source of history on a location mm -hmm. that cannot be the only thing that you bring to the table in an investigation right, right. if you're really going to truly go and investigate a place read a book Look yeah. at some other things that have gone on in history. Don't just take things that you see on television at face value because even those things that even those ghost hunters perhaps found out, that well, all goes through yeah, production but and if they you, have no control well, over Well, right, that. but even if you remember if you remember when, when Jason and Grant were at the Lint Mansion, right. Jason even said, I mean, and he and I talked about this when I did that radio show with right. him not that long ago. We talked specifically about this. That's not, they even said, you know, so you're telling me there, there's no record of this, right? Oh, no, there isn't. And he's, he's like, okay, so why are you telling it? I mean, they wanted to know, why are you telling this story? And that's a TV show. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, mostly, usually one of the better ones, but still. 
you know, even they were saying, why are you telling the story? Because it's not true. Next, you're going to tell so. me I can't believe everything I read on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I remember, Troy, when we were in South Dakota, I was at the hotel watching a show um, that was <laughs> yeah. on – a, a show uh-huh. that's still on right now about a location that was literally across Deadwood. the street from where we were that we went street. to the next night. And I'm, yeah. No, it was that. Oh, night. that I same was night. Right, right, right. And that's you right. stayed back, remember? Right. And I had to go to this, uh, not had to, got to go to this ghost hunt. We had an amazing time. So much incredible activity going on. Absolutely none of it had to do with what the story was that was being told right, on, that on that show. show. And when I arrived, I told the uh, the owner or the person that worked there, I said, it's really strange because I just saw you guys on TV, <laughs> walked across the street, and now... It's completely you know, different than what I saw on TV. And yeah. he yeah. hollered to his bartender and said, hey, we're on TV, and turned it on. <laughs> but then continued to tell me the real story i think a lot of that stuff happens in post-production yeah i think you're right a lot of fame perhaps and a lot of traffic but it's not something that we well i mean you know when it comes to this when it comes to the limps what what do people want to talk about well that's the problem all you hear about are the ones that committed suicide or the ones you know the ones that died that's all you hear about Uh, if you if you told ask somebody who says, oh, yeah, I know all about the Lent Mansion, and then ask them, tell me something about Lewis. They don't even know who, they've never even heard of him. Right. I can, I, I can guarantee it. They <laughs> like, don't know anything about him. Nope, fake well, news. Well, tell me, you know, who was, uh, you know. Anybody, tell me about Anna, Hilda. Anna's husband. You know, do you know who Hilda married? Yeah. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, she married into the other big beer family yeah. of the That's of the one, the, that's the one the bullet point period. I've grabbed yeah. on her. Yeah. That was well, it. I mean, that that's, that's, that's her story. I mean, that's, she was i think for whatever reason she's always been sort of the unremarkable sister i mm-hmm. don't know why um i mean because that's kind of a big deal you know but for it's harder to find information about her do you want to stand out in this family honestly? well <laughs> yeah you know well, how do you stand out well apparently you have to shoot yourself because uh, no one remembers your name if you don't right so you know that so, seems to be the problem yeah so yeah breaking news uh paranormal shows are kind of exaggerated <laughs> a little bit uh Hey everyone, I want to take 30 seconds to brag about my friend and co-host, Troy Taylor, and offer our listeners a special deal for being part of our show. On Friday, April 13th, Troy is launching an updated edition of Haunted St. Louis, and our listeners can use the offer code PODCAST for 10% off of this updated edition. But he also has a lot of other books. If you want to learn more about the Limp family, for instance, you can check out the book Suicide and Spirits. Or if you're just looking for some good reads, two of my personal favorites are The Devil and All His Works and Fear the Reaper. Visit AmericanHauntingsInc.com and use the offer code PODCAST for 10% off of Haunted St. Louis. Again, that's AmericanHauntingsInc.com. Use the offer code PODCAST for 10% off of an updated edition of Haunted St. Louis. And now, on with the show. A little bit... But on the podcast, we, we yes. try to keep it we're, real. We're trying. Yes, we uh, are trying. Right. Okay, so, okay, moving on then. There's another story that we have to talk about and get out of the way, but it's definitely very interesting, and you've been telling me about this for a while. Yeah. So we're going to talk about it as best we can. I'm going to say up front for all you nerds, this is all allegedly, 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 right, right. but we're going to talk about Andrew Paulson. Tell me what you can. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I tried to include what I could 
when I did the monologue because I don't I don't really want to I don't want to sit and and talk bad about him. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, this is one of those things I have a tough time with because personally. I liked the guy. Yeah. I really did. I, I mean, I, I don't know what's become of him. He really, when all this stuff happened, he sort of just broke contact with pretty much everybody that I know that knew him kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but when I first met him, um, he had a woman who uh, had, they were just friends that she'd sort of partnered up with him. Um, and I, I didn't even, I don't even bring her into the story because they, they parted ways as well um, eventually. But, you know, they knew of my interest in the limps and they came to me and asked me really to, if I would be interested in, and never asked me for anything. Um, the, the only thing of all the stuff that I did with them, all the things that they, you know, sent with me, let me photograph, look over the records, read anything I wanted to, all the stuff I had, they, ne- he never asked me for a dime. They weren't making any money no, off of there, He never you made any anything. money of it. I didn't go around, you know, talking about, you know, you know, spreading his name and making him famous. I mean, I, you know, you got to thank you. I mean, it really, it was just sort of a case of where he kept telling me, I don't, you know, I don't want anything from this. I just want to, you know, help you, you know, gather information. Here's some more information for Mm -hmm. you. And I guess my thing about it was, is that, and when it all came about that, that, you know, there was some huge, like gaping holes in the story you could drive a truck through. But initially, what I was focused on was the fact that he had all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had keys to the mausoleum. Uh, you know, How and you yeah, those? I've seen I've seen a possible explanation as to where he got them. Um, whether or not that's accurate, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody can say that's a possibility. Um, but he had he had keys. He had all the stuff. I mean, these records and these photographs and the stuff. And it's where where would you get it? I mean, it would have cost a fortune to go around and buy this stuff. Unless, I mean, you know, uh, far out there, he stumbled into a, you know, a big batch of stuff that happened to belong to the limps by mistake and decided, hey, I'm going to pretend to be one. Right. Why? Yeah. I mean, but why? I mean, I don't, that's the thing. He, it wasn't like he got rich from it. It wasn't and, like, I mean, I know he sold a few things and I know he sold some tickets to stuff and, you know, people paid him to do, but it couldn't have been that much money. Right. Trust me. As someone who has done presentations, yeah. and uh, you know, you're not getting rich doing that. Yeah. Um, and you, you'll find out later in some of our episodes why it's very impressive that he had any of these right, heirlooms exactly. or any, any of that of kind of stuff. stuff. You know, um, but you know, he claimed to be, you know, part. I mean, descended from uh, the 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 oldest sister Anna's side of the family. Right. And um, you know, her son. Uh, her or his, her granddaughters were, you know, rather surprised to hear this since they didn't have any children. Um, Crazy. And then the story was that, you know, that he was an illegitimate, her fa- his father was an illegitimate child, and, you know, which that's why there's no record. And, you know, the same it just, with Monkey Boy. Yeah, right? it's, of it's course, just, it just yeah. became one of those things. It, it became, you know, this. Well, there's this. Well, there, you know, oh, but that's because there's this, you know, and it just seemed like there, but not, there were no hard records to show anything, you know. Um, you know, I think, I think that I wasn't the only one, obviously. There were a lot of other people who were taken in by it too. But mm-hmm. speaking for myself, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to admit that I got taken in by it because I think I just got overwhelmed by 
the stuff, the amount of stuff and the records and everything. And, and I guess my other thing was, is that why would you pretend to be something like this? I mean, it's not like he was pretending to be, you know, uh, a Rockefeller or something where he had a chance to, to, to lay his hands on a bunch of money. There's no money, right? There's, there's no money anymore. That's all gone. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the past. Um, and he certainly wasn't going to become famous because of it, because the only people that the limps are famous for is maybe some history buffs and ghost people. Yeah, they, I mean, they'd say, it's you're not, a limp. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. But yeah. you know what? Big deal. Right. You know, so I don't know. The whole thing is just still baffles me. Um, it, and that's that's kind of the way, I, you know, when I wrote it in the in the in the monologue is that, you know, I this is a, a mystery that. I cannot solve for you because mm-hmm. I don't have the answers. I, I really don't. It's it's you interesting know. to me because, you know, you I I don't know, you know, some people listening to the podcast might know Troy, but like you're not somebody that somebody could just pull one over on very easily. Not you're, and, usually and you'll I you'll come pretty assume clean everyone with is lying to me. That's my yeah. immediate reaction. I think to that's everything. very that's very so. fair. Lisa, did you ever meet this okay. guy she's talking no, about? I no, never it was did. before her. I saw some of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I've heard about him. Yeah, I've talked I about him quite a bit. Well, yeah. I will no, say though, it was like probably in junior high. No, it was not very long ago. <laughs> oh, so. I'll cut that out. Yeah. But, high school. I was in high school. No, you weren't. You were teaching already. Oh, so no, yeah. that can't be. Yeah, it can. <laughs> so <laughs> guys, all right, I'll, I'll all cut right. this out. <laughs> yeah. I will say though, with all your investigative skills, Troy, the one thing you've let me know, and I, where I think you slipped up, was that. You knew how tall this guy was. Well, there was that. There was that. Um, that was always the funny thing about it is that. Did he drive a really big truck? No, he didn't. <laughs> um, you know, but the the funny thing about it was is that he was he was very tall. He's like six four. Yeah, and that's and not I that's not a limp. That's I should have known better because all the limps were like five feet tall. <laughs> right. You know, five foot two or something. They're all very small compact guys and you know here's this tall guy who's like six four i should have known that you know that he wasn't a limp so <laughs> man well hindsight hindsight's 2020 um so you know troy mentioned earlier but some of the things that are going to be coming up in the next episodes uh just to give you kind of a sneak peek we're going to talk about the rise of the limp brewery talk about the caves in uh st louis in general um, the decline and, and yeah, eventual fall of the Limp Empire. Including Cherokee Cave, yeah. which I had the chance to tour. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so we're going to have some so, great yeah. you know, anecdotes from you. There's great, you have a lot of pictures in yeah. your book about yeah. that too. Um, we're going to talk about you know, suicides, tragedies, deaths in general, hauntings at Limp Mansion, personal experiences, um, things like that. Also with this episode, I'm going to include a lot, if I can, I want to include a lot of show notes like with images and oh, links sure. to things because there's yeah, we have do a lot, have a of, lot material, of photographs yeah. a lot of material and you even seeing a picture of this of uh the brewery early on it's huge oh yeah it was massive and, and this was in the 1800s or yeah something, and, the, and the when you drive by there now and you see what's left of the brewery um you know with the big international shoe company mm-hmm. tower on it because that was who bought most of the property when it was For sold super cheap yeah too. and it sold in the in the early 20s after prohibition started um but you could see the just down just a little bit away from the international shoe companies area was what was left of the limp towers in fact it's the big tower that still says limp yeah, on it to this yeah. day um, that actually was added in 1911 that wasn't a part of the original so when you look at those pictures of how big that brewery was 
I mean, it was massive, just massive. A mm-hmm. lot of that area now that, you know, we think about, if you go down to that part of Soulard, um, you know, has been wiped out by the interstate, you know, has yeah. been taken over by the interstate. And so, but all of that was the brewery at one time. It was just a huge, huge complex. So, and it's still massive. It's still gigantic in there. I mean, it's just huge. Okay, well, I think for now we should probably wrap this up because we, in case we have some sort of, you know, mutiny because no, we didn't have enough ghosts. So yes. on this uh, this particular episode, so long um, it is a long episode, um, but I, we hope you enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> We're and just getting started. We, we've appreciated all of the, you know, comments and reviews and we, we noticed that we're getting, we're starting to get a lot more since we moved over to St. Louis and we appreciate that. Yep. Um, these have been really fun episodes for us. And uh, I don't know how long we're going to be in St. Louis. It may be, um, years i know i don't know there, i don't know anyway there are we, no rules there are no rules so you just never know when it will all come to an end uh but anyway we do appreciate it if you have not left us a review on itunes yet please do that um we we, we i know we ask you every time um sometimes on my instagram posts i, I literally beg you to leave us reviews on itunes um only because well, because normally, because people make fun of Cody, I think they're hilarious. They're and, great. <laughs> no, actually, we, we, we really do enjoy the, the reviews. And the, the big thing about it is it really isn't for our entertainment. What it is is that it makes it easier for people to find the show. Yep. That, that's the big thing is for people who are looking for it, it it's a lot easier to find if they, uh, there are reviews for it on iTunes. That's the, that's the main reason that we ask you to do that. So we do appreciate it. Uh, we do appreciate the emails and comments, and we will get back to some of those. Uh, we know that there were some questions and stuff. This just turned into a really long episode. Uh, but we will get back into um, you know replying to your comments and that sort of thing uh, in the future, too, for, sure. for and some of our upcoming episodes. And if you have questions and things about limps, please. Yeah, anything. Do yeah, anything. Episodes, yeah, send comments send my way. or... Yeah, we've still got three. I mean, don't don't send us a comment and go, how come you didn't talk about this suicide for this first episode? Because we are going to get there. But if you have something, you know, from the episode that you want to weigh in on, you know, we 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 want to hear about or experience you happy to listen. um, And unless you're going to try to convince me of the reality of the monkey boy, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, don't bother. Yes. Um, But other than that, um, you know, please, we do. We do hope that we hear from you. Um, uh, coming up, I think the next live event we have will be the Haunted America Conference uh, in June in Alton, Illinois, June 22nd, 23rd. Uh, we will be doing a live episode, one of our, our special episodes outside of the the St. Louis season um, at the conference. And we'd love to see you there. We'd love to have you there. If you're signed up for the conference, thank you. Um, if you're not signed up yet, you're running out of time. I mean, and I mean that seriously. I mean, normally, you know, we talk about the conference and we talk about, you know, Oh, better sign up fast, sign up fast. And I'm telling you that in January and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, whatever, Troy, but I'm actually serious now because we are now we're well over two thirds sold out and we are running out of cheat running out of seats. So if you really want to come and we hope that you do, cause it's going to be a great time. Um, we really want to see you there. Um, Cody will have a booth set up at the, in the vendor room uh, for, you know, you know, American Honey's podcast stuff. Um, we'll be doing the live episodes. So please come. Uh, go mm-hmm. check out the website. It's ghostconference.net. Very easy to remember. And uh, get signed up. 
uh, please. And then we will see you uh, in June for that. Yeah. And I'll, like I said, Troy said, I'll have a booth set up. You pay me five bucks. We can probably do like whatever you want. You know, I'll figure something <laughs> yeah, out, whatever yeah, paranormal. Yeah. Some, some special episode yeah. dedicated to just you. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, or it's like, hey, I need somebody to cut my grass. Whatever. We can figure something out. I'll be there. Bring him a stiff drink and you can get this about anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I got you can quote me on whatever you want. Um, awesome. So this is part one of three, four, four probably, probably, four. Yeah, probably, probably four. four. So strap in because it's going to get crazy. Yeah, it is. Awesome. All right. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday. So please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to some of Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or CodyBeck.com. You can find Troy on Instagram at Troy Taylor Graham, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author Page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor. It's produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music of this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, and it was all reviewed by Lux. <laughs> <laughs>